in October of this year, Matthew Cordell was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. It's a mandatory that he will lose for life his driving privileges, but for maybe the next six and a half years, Matthew will sit in a prison cell and have to go through and play back in his mind what will be for him sin and failure and regret. It leads us to ask the question, what do you do with regrets? What do you do with those moments in life that you wish that you could take back? And they might come for us in different forms. There might be different intensities on the spectrum, but when you boil it all down, it's just the issues of sin and the failures that we have in our life and the decisions we've made. And oftentimes, those things have a tendency to stack up in our lives and become baggage. And in it, we carry it everywhere we go. Like that baggage that we're carrying, it affects our relationships, it affects our work, it affects our joy, and it affects our spiritual life and even connection to God. And what we know is when you're lifting heavy bags like that, no one can move swiftly or quickly when they're trying to lug that stuff around. And so for some of us, maybe one suitcase might represent just dysfunctional connections and relationships that are a heavy weight, and so we try to carry that around everywhere. Or one might be unresolved conflict. And I don't know if you've ever had just conflict in your life that's unresolved with either your spouse or maybe it's a boss and the heavy toll that takes in your mind and your thinking and the energy that's required. Sometimes it might just simply be a failure in your life that something didn't go, maybe you got terminated from the job, maybe it was the marriage or the end of a relationship and you've got to sit and think to deal with all those things or sometimes just a sin in your life that you're aware of and all those things after a while become huge heavy weights that we carry around. And you know when you carry that kind of heavy luggage, you don't get very far, at least not very quickly and not without a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Or or maybe for you, this analogy doesn't work. You're not really so much into carrying a bunch of luggage. Maybe for you, it's more of the analogy of something like this, the sexy high heel shoe. These are not mine, by the way. That you, you're not, no, I'm not carrying all that stuff around. For you, the race that you're running in life is more like you're trying to do it in high heels, meaning there's like one thing in your life, one sin that you're aware of, or one life issue that you know is there, and because of it, you're having a hard time looking God in the eyes. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but because of that thing in your life, you have a hard time praying because you assume He's probably hacked off at you and upset with you. Maybe it's that one addiction or that one relationship that you know. If it stays the same in 2014, then you could expect that this year will probably be no different than 2013. And so what happens is we have, and we talked about this last week from the writer of Hebrews. He'll say in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and then let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See, this is the question this morning is, what is it that, what is your everything that hinders? And what is your sin that so easily entangles? Because this is what the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging, that baggage slows us down. Wearing high heels will not allow you to run a race with great perseverance or speed, at least not the one marked out for you. You're not going to get real far, and if you do, it's going to take you a long time, and when you arrive, you're going to arrive with blisters and nerve damage and bunions. And who's got time for bunions? My assignment would be for you, go home and just spend some time just with you and the Lord. Just sit down in a quiet space and just a place that you feel comfortable. And I don't know how you do, maybe just a piece of paper and pen. Maybe you keep a journal. Maybe you do this on your computer. Go home and make a list of your things that hinder. 
And write down in your journal those sins that so easily entangle. And here's the question you should answer. It's this. What do you know needs to be left behind in 2013 and not carried forward into 2014? And I know we're five days into it, but I'm telling you, write down everything that you know. No, that's got to stay there. I can't bring this into a new year because if I do, then I know this year will be no different than last year. It won't work out for me any differently this year than it did last year. And let everything be on the table. What thoughts from 2013 don't need to come into 2014 because they're sabotaging you. They're depressed and they're paranoid and they're robbing you of life. And so I'm leaving it in 2013. What sort of behaviors did you have in 2013 that you know if I continue in this course, it's not going to go any better for me in 2014? What relationships, or maybe it's a thing or an object or a particular situation that you could say, not this year. They aren't following me into a new year. That was 2013, but this is 2014. That belonged to the 2013 version of Sam, but he's had a systems update, and this is the new Sam 2.0, the Sam 2014, or whatever version I'm up to. I'm not bringing in all those bugs and quirks that were slowing me down. I'm not bringing into a new year those things that need to be left behind in 2013. Remember, it's in John chapter 15, Jesus is referring to himself as the vine, and we're the branches. He says, you should stay plugged into me as the vine. That's how you're going to bear fruit. And what he means is that's how you're going to have a good life, an abundant life. And in 2014, that's what we want, to bear fruit, to have an abundant life. And what Jesus says is, yeah, stay engrafted into me. And then he says, he says, you know what my father is? He's like the master gardener. You know what he carries around? Pruning shears. And Jesus will say in John 15 that, his father, the master gardener, will prune those parts of our life that are dead, that aren't producing anything. They just get cut off. And then he'll say, and even those parts that are producing, he'll keep pruning so that it'll produce more. So the parts of your life that are dead are going to get it pruned. The parts of your life that are producing is going to get pruned so that it gets more productive. You know what that means? Everything gets pruned. And pruning by nature feels violent. It can feel painful. I mean, things are cutting and sawing. And if it were easy and painless, we would have let go of those things years ago. Those things get pruned. They can feel like they're essential parts of who we are. They feel like they're attached to us in such a way that we can't live without them. You wouldn't even know who you are anymore if you let go of the fact that you keep beating yourself up over and over again because of that past sin. You wouldn't even recognize yourself if you finally let go of the luggage of depression and bitterness. Right now, even though he's a bum and everyone around you knows he's a bum, you can't imagine life without your boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera. Most of us hang on to things. Wait, did you say that spit? Man, it is like that's Olympics. Anyhow, most of us hang on to things way. I had a lot of coffee this morning, no ADD medication. I'm a little piped. Okay, so yeah. Most of us hang on to things way longer that's healthy we need to. You know why? Hope. I'm blaming hope. We keep ourselves in miserable context and miserable situations because hope tells us, well, maybe things will be better in 2014. Hope tells us to hang on and not give up. Hope tells us, let's give it another shot or extend another chance. Now, listen, I'm for hope. Hope is my friend. But if there's anything positive to be said about the death of hope, it's that it finally gives us permission to let go and to move on. It allows us to say, yeah, that horse is dead and I can now dismount. 
The death of hope allows us to move on. It allows us to relieve something, receive something better because we finally stopped clinging onto something that wasn't working to begin with. And let me give you a couple resources that you should investigate to kind of help us in this thinking. Because I'm not really against hope, but I want you to understand this idea. Sometimes we've got to let go of things in our life and not carry it with us anymore so that we can receive the things that God has for us. And two resources. One, it's a book by a guy named Henry Cloud is his name. Now, he wrote another book called Boundaries that I think everybody should read. But he has just recently written another book called Necessary Endings. And I think will help you in terms of these are things i got to let go of in my life and not come back to if I plan on having an abundant life. Necessary Endings. The second is a resource by a guy named John Acoff, and it's just called Quitter. And it's, it, it applies to different areas of your life, including your job and business and those sorts of things. But it's this idea of, oh, yeah, if I'm going to really be able to attain this in life, I'm going to have to let go of this. Because here's what I know about this new year for me. I'm talking from Sam. I don't want a better system to manage all of my failures and regrets and sins. I don't need another year of figuring out how to compartmentalize my issues and investing time and energy into figuring out how to deal with each one of them. What I need is a clear history button that you could pull up my life browser of mistakes and sins and failures, and you're not going to find anything because it's now blank, because somebody has cleared all of the cookies and all the caches, if that's how you say it, and all the history. It's now gone. I don't need sin management. What I need is a fresh start. What I need is a clean slate. And here's the thing. Our gospel, which means good news about Jesus, helps us in this. Listen to me. The gospel is not, if you work really hard, God might finally accept and approve you. That's not our gospel. The good news is not, if in this new year you really discipline yourself and really put your best effort into it, you can finally be done with sin and failure and regret. That's not our gospel. The good news is not if you finally read the right self-help book or attend that one conference or listen to that podcast series, you'll finally be free from all of the baggage that entangles or hinders. In fact, what story can we even turn to in the Bible that illustrates someone working really hard and through increased self-improvement finds salvation from anything? You can't find it anywhere. From Genesis to Revelation, you're not going to find it. The scriptures honestly don't encourage us or give us much hope in the self-improvement strategies. Now listen, I'm not saying there isn't wisdom to be found in the world. I'm not saying that, right? We, we should learn from whatever experts there are. There's a lot of great things about habits and the power of habits. There are some great resources about finances and how to do that well and budgeting. There are great books on relationships. And you know there's good books on how to be healthy and to stay fit. But listen... Don't you think if there really was a six easy steps to anything, we'd already discovered it and already done it? And the reason why we're all still stuck in the things that we don't want to be stuck in anymore is because there's a deeper issue here. There's a deeper problem going on. And it touches at the very core of our gospel. And it's this. You are so screwed up and messed up, you suck at the deepest levels you haven't even begun to acknowledge. You aren't even capable of being good enough, spiritual enough, righteous enough, or religious enough to earn anything or to change anything. That is at the core of our story. At the core of who we are, it's about there is an operational system that is our heart that is totally broken and malfunctioning. And the good news is Jesus wants to give us a new operational system, a new heart, totally free. Really? Are you serious, Clark? Yes. Why? Simply because he's crazy in love with you. You know how sometimes computers, especially PCs, that's for you, Larry, for you PCs, 
after time, they get full of spyware and viruses and bugs, and it's slow. And it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it takes five minutes for it to boot up and close down, all those sorts of things, right? When, at the end of the day, when, like, there's nothing else to be done, what do you do? What's the last step? What do you do? You put in those installation disks that wipes everything out and sets it way back to its original factory settings. In some way, Jesus is wanting to put the installation disk into our life that resets us back to what God intended from the very beginning. That's what we need. That is the clear history we're talking about. At the core is an operational system that's only hope is in conversion. It's the complete letting go, the admission that I can't fix myself. I got 300 resolutions. I do that every single year. But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, I I don't have the slightest hope that it's my own ability that's going to change anything in my life. And when I'm there, that's when I'm prepared finally to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as long as you continue to treat Christianity like another self-help, self-improvement technique with maybe a slight spiritual bent, you will never understand or experience the true meaning of the gospel of Jesus. And we hear sometimes in our language, and I'm not like, you know, well, I just feel better when I go to church. And that's great. But that's not the gospel. Or, well, I I mean, I have more peace when I pray, which that's great. But that's not core to the gospel. But I'm a nicer person, I think, when I follow the teachings of Jesus. No, that's great. But that's not... The gospel. The gospel is, I'm a wretch. Like, I'm broken in every way. And yet Jesus loves me anyhow. And he confronts my heart, not just to live in it, but to exchange it for a new one. So I could infuse a little bit of realism into this conversation, because sometimes as a pastor, you get frustrated. I mean, if I have to admit, I get frustrated that it feels like, what I say is like, there's power in the gospel. Sometimes it feels like, that power isn't strong enough to change people. An addict finds Jesus, but they still behave like an addict. And I think to myself, I get a little frustrated. I think, now how come Jesus didn't take that addiction away? Like, why? They met Jesus. They know Jesus now, and, and they still are struggling with this addiction. Or somebody finds Jesus, but it seems that their discovery of Jesus has no impact on their decision-making when it comes to their relationships or their dating life. And I walk away just a little frustrated thinking, why didn't Jesus change the way that they think about those sorts of things? Or somebody encounters Jesus, but they're just as bitter at their ex-husband or their ex-wife as they were before they encountered Jesus. And I think, what's up with this, God? Why Why is this not having greater impact? And then when I'm at the height of my frustration... I get a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I turn inward and realize my greatest frustration is that I don't see the power of the gospel in my own life that I'd like to experience. And that's why when I read what Paul says in Romans 7, which I know I talked about this a few weeks ago, where Paul's like, yeah, the things that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing, and the things that I want to do, that I'm not doing. There's something that go, that's where I, I mean, anyone else live in Romans 7 where, why do I keep going back to the things that I know I'm not supposed to go back to, and the things that I want to do, I'm sitting down and just watching TV. That's And so we could get all excited and get all enthused and, yay, 2014, it's a new year, a new me, it's going to be my year. And then you come to that crushing realization that, didn't I say this at the beginning of 2013 and 2012 and 2011? I mean, mean, my 300 resolutions, like, they carry with me, it seems, year after year after year. Why do I still have those thoughts And why do I still struggle with those behaviors? And why do I keep going back to the things I know I'm not supposed to go back to? And it leaves us with a serious theological quandary. Does the gospel really have the power to change anyone? And do people really change? 
And can people change? And if so, to what extent? And this is important in regards to this clear history topic. How am I going to leave behind my sin and my failures and my regrets and the things that that I feel like I want to leave that behind, and yet I feel like I'm still living in sin, failure, and regret? So let's turn to the Scriptures, and I'm going to paint a big picture here from Matthew to Romans. Now, don't let that scare you as I say that, because it won't take me as much time as that sounds, but I want to begin with Jesus and the four books in the Bible that start out in the New Testament called Gospels. They're the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what will happen is if you read those four books, those four Gospels, what you'll see is from the beginning to the end, its central narrative focus is Jesus. doesn't spend a lot of time developing the characters that surround Jesus. Because the point of the Gospel isn't their development, but rather their encounter with Jesus. Jesus is the primary character. And so we see that in lots of different encounters. For example, in John chapter 4, you have a woman that Jesus encounters at a well. There's a woman who's getting water at a well, and Jesus walks up, and they begin to have a conversation. And Jesus mentions something about her husband, and she says, well, actually, you know, I don't don't want to. He goes, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. And so she's like, whoa. So, So the question is, after this encounter with Jesus, what happens to this woman? You know what happens to her? We don't know. It doesn't say. Is her whole life changed? Is it transformed? It the point of the Gospels is not what happens to this woman. It's her encounter of Jesus. We do know she goes home and tells everybody she knows, I met a dude who could tell me everything about my life. Do you think he might be the Christ? The point of the Gospel story is not what happens to her. The focus isn't on her. The focus is on who he is and how he revealed himself to her as the Christ. Or take John 8. There's a story of a woman who, like, is literally caught in the act of adultery, and they drag her out, and they're going to stone her. Remember that story? And Jesus is on the scene. They want to know what Jesus thinks. So Jesus just says, all right, well, whoever's without sin, you get to throw the first stone. They all kind of drop their stones and walk away. When they're all gone, he looks at this woman, and he says, where are those who condemn you? I don't condemn you either. He says, go and leave your life of sin. And you know what happens to her next? You know what happens in her life? You know, you know what happens? No idea. Doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell us, like, after that moment of encountering Jesus, does everything change for her and she becomes a nun? I mean, none of that stuff. What we, all we know is she encountered Jesus. The focus is on Jesus. And he reveals himself as gracious and forgiving and kind and a protector. And over and over again in the Gospels, it always goes back to Jesus. Even in Luke 5, Jesus gets into a boat that belongs to a guy named Peter. Like this is right when they start to get to know one another. So Jesus gets in Peter's boat and Jesus is teaching the crowds. And he finally says to Peter, let's kind of go out into the lake. And, and Peter's been fishing all day. But Jesus says, go ahead and lay out your nets and let's get some fish. And Peter's like, look, dude, I know you're like the rabbi, but I'm the fisherman. I've been doing this all day. There's nothing, I, we caught nothing. But because you say I will. So he does. And he pulls up nets so full of fish, he's got to call other boats in to help him. You know what Peter's response to Jesus is when that happens? He says, I need you to get away from me because I am a sinful man. Now, with Peter, as a secondary character, we do get to see how his life changes some, but never do we see Jesus say, follow me and I'll teach you five easy steps to stop sinning or failing or having regrets. What he does is he approaches Peter and invites him to follow him to place his faith in him, and to acknowledge who he is. And that's all we ever get out of the Gospels. I mean, we get stories of healings and people delivered from demons and even dead people coming back to life, but the focus never leaves Jesus. They encounter Jesus. They are invited by faith to receive him as Lord and Savior. 
but no promises that they will be given some tips on how to be a nicer person or no system of sin management to help them overcome that pesky addiction or only an invitation to repent and receive the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus will teach repentance, and he'll talk about obedience. These are not far from our encounter with Jesus, but our success in it doesn't receive the attention. Jesus gets the attention. And so by the time you're done with the four Gospels, you get to the next book, which is Acts. Now, Acts was written by Luke. Luke wrote a Gospel, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And the entire point of the book of Acts is to try to explain how 12 dudes who were largely uneducated fishermen surrounding Jesus was changing the world because they were changing the world. And how in the world is this taking place? And so what happens is Luke tells the stories about revolutionary change, and in it Luke describes conversion. So he'll talk about Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people encounter Jesus and the story of Jesus. And what do they experience? Conversion. They've placed their faith in Jesus. They've accepted him as the Christ and the Son of God. And this is happening all over Jerusalem and all over Judea. And as Luke keeps telling the story, he'll tell about this guy named Saul who later became Paul. And he encounters Jesus. And then his heart is converted. Yeah, he used to go around killing Christians, but now he follows Jesus. Luke will tell, did you know even Samaritans are following Jesus? They're putting their faith in Jesus. He'll tell us stories of Simon the magician. Even as successful as he was and as much money as he was making, he put his faith and trust in Jesus. Did you know there was a story about an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the prophet Isaiah and he encounters Jesus and puts his faith and trust in Jesus? Cornelius who's a Roman soldier and a Gentile. Listen, I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but if we were Jewish, it would be like, are you kidding me? A Gentile? He puts his faith in Jesus. A Philippian jailer puts his faith in Jesus. And story after story, it's all about conversion. And we get to see signs of it in the narrative. They repent. They confess their sins. They declare Jesus is the Christ or Lord. They put their faith in him. They believe. They're baptized. But not once is the focus on their ability to change. The focus constantly and totally remains on Jesus. And this is essential for clear history. Listen to this for a moment. Think about this for a moment. Let's talk about Cornelius, right? That Roman soldier in Acts 10. Cornelius has an entire lifetime of certain thoughts and certain behaviors. He's got an entire worldview that he's inherited that's been a part of his life since he was born. And it leads him to different values and proclivities that have been a part of his life his entire life. And then in one moment, he encounters the person of Jesus, decides to put his faith in him. Now I ask you, does a lifetime of habits and proclivities immediately leave Cornelius? No, probably not. The Bible never indicates that. It doesn't even focus on that. The focus is on the conversion of Cornelius' life. He used to not believe in Jesus, but now he does. Or take that Ethiopian eunuch, for example. He's got an entire lifetime of thoughts and behaviors. Do they change in an instant when he meets Jesus? No. The Bible never indicates that. It doesn't even focus on that. The focus is on the reality that the Ethiopian eunuch now believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That Philippian jailer, he probably had a habit of cussing every time that door slammed into his finger. He was probably around those words all day long, practically a lifetime of it. And then one day he encounters Jesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Do you think in a moment he, he no longer has the propensity to say those words when his finger gets slammed on the jailhouse door? No, probably not. What's the focus? The focus is that the jailer has, by faith, accepted Jesus. 
Not once does the Bible ever commend anyone for their ability to discipline themselves out of sin or failure and regret. Not once does the Bible ever say, and then Paul implemented a 12-step plan that rescued him from his tendency to be religious prideful. Never. Not once does the Bible ever say, and Cornelius committed himself to a Bible reading plan and he was able to overcome his lustful thoughts. Never once. Not once does the Bible say, and the Ethiopian eunuch joined a group of other eunuchs and together they held each other accountable to overcome their collective depression that they were lacking testicles. Not once. And this is important because so many times people give their lives to Jesus and then they discover that they look in the mirror and it feels like they're the same person prior to giving their life to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, or that idea that, you know, I struggled with that thought before Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus, and that thought is still there, and I'm still struggling with it even after I put my faith in Jesus. Or I kept committing this sin before Jesus, and now that I put my faith in Jesus, I'm still struggling with the same sin. And it can be very discouraging. You almost think, I don't know if this Christianity thing took, like, I don't think it's working for me because... You know, that sinful thought was there before Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus, and I still have that same sinful thought. A lifetime of certain thoughts and habits and values and behaviors do not get instantaneously changed by putting your faith in Jesus. And that is why your salvation never gets attached to your ability to discipline or control your thoughts, behaviors, and inclinations. Ever. The focus is always on Jesus. You don't get a clear history because you could discipline yourself to remove your past sins and failures and regrets. You get a clear history because of Jesus. Your clear history has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. And this is the scandal of our faith. And this is why Paul, it seems at every turn, is getting in trouble because when he preaches grace, it sounds like it's pretty permissive. But what Paul knows and what I would remind you this morning is this isn't about you. You have, no, it's, you have a new position before God, and it has nothing, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus, that we put our faith in him. I now belong in him and to him. So my question for you this morning is, have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you belong to him? Do you have a new position before God because you've confessed him as Lord and you believe? You have to start there, otherwise I've got nothing else for you. Like in this little three-week clear history series, I don't have a foolproof eight-step plan for you to get out of sin, failure, and regret. In fact, my plan is just for fools, which means we all qualify that says, hey, dummy, you suck, you can't do anything, you better put your faith in him because that's your only hope. That is the good news. And so it brings us back to our question. So does the power of the gospel, does it really change anybody? I say yes. People change. And Paul acknowledges this, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he's talking about lawsuits here, but he ends it with a little section that talks about kind of where they used to be in terms of the church, what the kind of lives they used to have. Here's what he starts in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you not, do not be deceived. And he gives the list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, 
which time out there, I don't know about you, if you know this, but this is a controversial issue in today's culture and society. Like, there's real Greek words here that meant things in the first century, and it's about how do we then figure out what those words mean here in the 21st century, and we should probably investigate that because it seems to be a very common subject uh, in our day and age, and that's another time, another place. But moving on, verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look what he says here, verse 11. Watch this. And that is what some of you, what does he say? Were. Like that used to be you. That used to be your life. It's not your life anymore. And he goes, and, 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 well, well, how'd that happen? Like, did they have a great, like, a ministry program in the Corinthian church that kind of the people went through? And I, mean, I don't know, maybe. But Paul tells us here what happens. He says, you were washed, meaning forgiven. You were sanctified. You were justified. And even just in that, like those powerful words, like washed, sanctified, justified, those are very important words that we need to hang on to. And we're going to talk more next week about sanctification, but you were, you were forgiven, and you were sanctified, and you were justified. Oh, here's what, because they tried really hard, right? They really put a lot of effort in. No, how did that happen? By what? By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. That's how it happened. What about you? But the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, that's how you were washed and sanctified and justified. While the Gospels focus on people's encounter with Jesus and Acts describes in narrative fashion what conversion looks like when people put their faith in Jesus, it's the book of Romans that, where Paul tries to theologically explain this whole thing. So if I might, let me give you just a little bit of Romans to kind of wrap this up. Paul, you see, Paul's got to explain this. How do people who look like that really get to be in position to be the people of God. And so Paul will start in Romans 1 and say, listen, there is a gospel that I'm not ashamed of at all because I know it has the power for salvation for everybody. I mean, Jew, Gentile, everybody. And then he'll go on the rest of Romans 1 and talk about the Gentiles and how screwed up they are. And just in the background, you can see the Jews going, yeah, that's right, those, those Gentiles are screwed up. And then you turn the page, you get to Romans chapter 2, and Paul goes, and guess what, you Jews... You're just as screwed up. And he goes on a whole chapter of how screwed up the Jews are. And then you get to chapter 3. Paul puts it all together and says, you know what? We're all in the same boat. We're all screwed up. He'll say this in chapter 3, verse 23. Uh, yeah, sorry, in verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But listen to this. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by what? Your hard work and discipline? No, by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who what? Have faith in Jesus. It is all about no, no, this is our position. Like, what? No, I, I, I have faith in him. I, I'm with him. See, someday the Father's going to look at me, and I'm just going to do this. I'm with him. <laughs> and God's going to good, that's how it works. It's not going to be, hey, look what I did, and look what I was able to accomplish, and look at my discipline, and look at my perfection. It's, oh, no, I'm, I'm with him, your son. And so what happens is then chapter 4 of Romans, Paul will say, even Abraham, like the great, I mean, even he is by faith. Then we get to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And some of you should highlight this in your Bible. It will be important to you. He'll say, therefore, since we have been justified through what? Faith. 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by into this grace in which we now stand. And we're not going to boast about our discipline anymore. What we boast in is the hope of the glory of God. So chapter 6 will talk about putting off that old self and dying to oneself. It'll talk about baptism and all those sorts of things. And when he gets to chapter 8, verse 1, listen to this. He'll say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who, what? Are in Christ Jesus. Not no condemnation for those who finally figure out how to drop all the luggage and the baggage of sin, failure, and regret. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ, Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Based on what? Jesus! Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so what happens is, by the time you get to the end of Romans, you can see a consistent theme. It's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. Put your faith in Him. Begin there. You have been washed. You have been justified. It's a positioning thing. I stand with Jesus. I'm with Him. I'm with King Jesus. You once were standing over there in that kingdom, but now you're standing over here in His kingdom, in King Jesus' kingdom. That's why Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Or he'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll close with this in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation. That God was not reconciling the world to himself, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What does that mean? That they're no sin anymore? No. What it means is because of the gospel, God's no longer counting their sins against them. And he's committed to us now the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're Christ's ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now listen to this, verse 21, because it's powerful. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know that when God sees you, what he sees is the reflection of his son? That's the positioning. That's the justification. See, when God sees you, what he sees is the reflection of his son. He let his son become sin, who had no sin, to become sin for us. So when God sees us, what he sees is his own righteousness. This is the story of our good news. This is the gospel. And I have so much more to say about this, but I'm out of time. The secret to your clear history, to moving beyond your sin, your failure, and regrets, is found only in Jesus. And so in spite of how you feel or in spite of even how your brain goes to those particular thoughts or your body moves towards those particular behaviors, in spite of how broken you are, how screwed up you are, how messed up, the proclivities to do the very things you don't want to do, and sometimes you have to admit you do want to do those things you know you're not supposed to do, begin squarely with this identity. You belong with Jesus. You've placed your faith in Jesus. And there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about sanctification, what it looks like. No, no, he puts us in a process of sanctification so he doesn't leave us the same way. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And it will always be all about Jesus. Why don't you stand? Let's pray together. God, we're grateful that you took this whole thing out of our hands because we would have messed it up royally.
that you did for us what we were not even capable of doing on our own, that you initiated, based on your own plan, your own agenda, even in your own person, a plan to rescue and save us. And you showed up as Jesus of Nazareth. And in that, you paid an ultimate price to extend to us salvation. So we confess this morning, this is all about Jesus. We've not earned this. We don't deserve it. We acknowledge it as grace. And we want to say we belong with him. Our positioning is with him. We confess our faith. This will we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. We're about to take up our tithes and offerings. Before we do that, I do want to uh, discuss with